We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. Keisha Lance Bottoms is the mayor of Atlanta, and I'm proud she's there. She's tackling criminal justice reform in part because her childhood was changed forever when her father was arrested and convicted of drug dealing. She learned, she said, that good people make bad decisions and it's important to have empathy for the incarcerated. She's also addressing something from deep in the history of Atlanta. She's reopened the investigation into the Atlanta child murders, which happened between 1979 and 1981, when at least 28 children were snatched and killed in a bizarre and frightening story that put fear into black homes around the country, including mine. Kids were getting snatched out of their beds in the middle of the night and disappearing or found dead. And no one was ever convicted of any of those murders. Wayne Williams was convicted of two other murders of adults. And many thought, okay, that means he was the man because after that they stopped. But a lot of people think he was the wrong man. Mayor Keisha wants to dig in and find out. I wanted to find out who she really is because she seems extremely inspirational. And after talking with her, she is. It's Mayor Keisha on Torre Show. What is your superpower? Because you have made it through, you know, coming up in Atlanta, you know, and like to become the mayor. Mm -hmm. So what is it about you that has allowed you to ascend to this height in life? Wow, that's a great question. I think what I've come to appreciate um, is probably a healthy dose of ADHD. And I mean that in... In all seriousness, I have this uncanny ability to do a lot of things at one time. And I think part of it really is, uh, you know, I do have ADHD, so I'm wired a certain way. But also just coming from this family that just did things differently. You know, my dad was an entertainer. Major Lance. So he, he thought very differently and lived very differently. And my mother has reinvented herself probably a hundred times over. And with everything she ever did, she did it with the same passion and interest and excitement. And I think I just, I'm I'm a healthy combination of the two of them. Okay. I want to talk about Atlanta issues, but I want to start with something that's a little more national in terms of the Atlanta child murders, which is, I was 10 when 10-year-old boys were being snatched from their bedrooms and it it affected me and my life and that my mom was like, you know, we're going in the house even earlier. You know, we were super tense in Boston, Mm -hmm. you know, know, as this was going on. So it affected my life. And um, so you're reopening the investigation. We have. Why? You know, it's interesting. This is one of these things that I've, asked myself, why is this so heavy on my heart after so many years? And it began with a couple of things. One, uh, Will Packer was doing a documentary, and he called to share with me that he was doing this documentary. And at the same time, there were some local journalists who were talking to some of the families. And there was um, a woman, Mrs. Leach, who is the mother of Curtis Walker, who one of the victims, and I saw her interview, and all she wanted was a marker, something as simple as a plaque. 
um, something she had been asking for to remember her son and the kids. And I thought, well, what, what a simple request. Can we not do that? And can we not do something even more extraordinary? So it initially began with the thought of creating a task force to examine the best way to honor their memories, the children's memories. And this is the Atlanta child murders. I was around the same age of age of the children who were disappearing. And it's one of those things when I became mayor, I thought, you know, I wonder if there's some information about these cases that somebody will now share with me that, you know, was top secret information and people don't know is there something out there because so many of us always thought that it was more to it than this one person who was arrested and convicted, Wayne, um, Williams. Wayne Williams. And so it it has really evolved. So I, I called our police chief because I just couldn't put it out of my mind. I actually called my chief operating officer and he had some preliminary conversations with our police chief on whether or not we had done any updated testing. And this is around the same time a cold case in Alabama had been broken. Um, two teenagers who were murdered in 1999, and it was linked to, I believe, a truck driver through DNA testing. And I asked, had we run any updated testing? So fast forward, it has caused us to reopen, and I use that term very loosely, but we are reexamining all of the cases to see is there anything else that we didn't look at? Was there any testing that can be done? But also what we've seen is that when Wayne Williams was arrested, we essentially stopped all investigations. He is not, correct me wrong, he's not convicted of killing any of the children. He's not. He was convicted of killing two, um, I'd say, young adults, I can't remember their ages exactly, but they were not nine, ten, eight years old like so many of the other. So no, per, no, officially, nobody has been brought to justice for all the children. How many children was it? Well, it, that's a complicated answer now. So we initially thought that this list included roughly, I believe, twenty-eight children. Hmm. And our police department has now gone back and examined murders uh, going back several years. It, the missing and murdered children list that we traditionally know of spans somewhere around, I believe, 1978, 79 through 81. Mm-hmm. We've gone back 10 years before and a few years after to see are there other murders of children in Atlanta that were unsolved, and there were other ones. So So we don't know yet if that list will expand, but it's possible that it will. There may be children who were not included on that list who otherwise should have been. Um, Some of their deaths were unsolved. This is not about exonerating Wayne Williams. It is not. This is about finding out what happened in this situation. And have we, has justice been served for all of these children? Um, Even in, in my looking at this, my husband and I were talking and he mentioned some murders of some teenagers in a park near um, where we grew up, which I'd never even heard of. They were lovers lane killings. So, not saying that they will be connected, but saying that there there was a lot going on. And over the course of time, if you think about our age, um, we were children. A lot of folk had retired, and even people on my staff, and including my communications director, never even heard of this. So it's a lot for us to piece together. Fortunately... Um, there's some folk who never let this go away. Chief Chief Graham, who was one of the investigators, he's since passed on. He had meticulous notes that our police department didn't have the amount of information that he had kept. And his family has been very generous in turning over some of his personal notes um, that may be helpful 
there are people who are examining this with fresh eyes, literally, because they weren't alive 40 years ago mm. when this was happening. So it has it's gotten a lot of interest, but I think most importantly, the families know that somebody's listening and that the children haven't been forgotten because there was a lot of, I don't know that you ever heal from the death of a child, but if you compound that with thinking that nobody cared and nobody remembers, um, it, it gets very complicated. <laughs> I mean, I was in Boston and it had a massive emotional impact on me and making me feel perhaps the fragility of black life and yeah. how easily it can be snatched away. And knowing that this was developing over years, I mean, it, it was sort of coming and people were like, is anybody paying attention to this pattern before the authorities started to pay attention to the pattern? Yeah. You were, we're about the same age. You were here. Were you, you were here living mm -hmm. here? With I was living in Atlanta. So what was some of, what is your personal emotional feelings and the impact that it had on you as an Atlantean of that age of the children who were being uh, victimized? So it's interesting. I have had um, this overwhelming emotion that I didn't have as a child. It's it's almost like a, a post-traumatic response. I think part of it has to do with the fact that I'm a mother now and I have children in the same age range, and I cannot fathom what these families went through. As a child... I, we were just terrified. Everybody was the boogeyman. Right. I remember being at the bus stop one day and a car slowing down and all of the kids just backpacks and shoes and we just all took off running and trembling and screaming and crying because we thought somebody was going to snatch you saw a strange one car. of us. And it was always this, you know, these warnings from your family about not going outside. And I remember one of my aunts and my grandmother calling my mother, begging her to send me to Chicago hmm. um, to live because they were killing black children in Atlanta. And it was just fear. And I, I just remember on the news, there was always a child going missing or a body being found or search teams looking for a child. This was daily. And uh, it was, you were just scared. And if you think about the life of a child for this to span for three years, and what's really struck me as an adult is I'm even learning more details that perhaps I missed as a child. Many of these kids were in the communities that I was in. They, The first Victim disappeared, leaving the skating rink that I went to every single Saturday. Mm. Um, so it's details like that that I didn't know and didn't remember as a child that really show how how close all of us in Atlanta were to this monster on our streets. Yeah, it was heavy. I remember feeling a lot of fear, even though I was far away. Yeah. Um, so what has surprised you about becoming mayor and being mayor? What is different than what you anticipated being mayor being like? I think one of the bigger surprises has been the the magnitude of my voice. Meaning um, when I, if I say something or if I do something, the way that it resonates, it's at times very unsettling because in my head I'm I'm still the same person and I'm still going the same places and saying the same things but it's it's uh it matters uh, more it matters more and it's I, I think for me I recognize the response I'm coming to recognize the responsibility of it but I also see how people who are irresponsible with it you mean like Trump uh, just like him, <laughs> how you're given this this platform and and it's yours to either do right by it or not. 
So I think that's been a surprise. I think one of the other surprises, a number of people who will sit in front of you and not tell the truth about any number of things. And just the desire to not do the right things on behalf of our communities has been shocking does, to me. <laughs> does finding out the weight of the mayor's words, does it make you nervous? Does it make you triple think in your head before the words come out? Sometimes. It just depends on how tired I am. <laughs> <laughs> the more exhausted I am, the more likely you're get you're going to get me unfiltered. But I, I do I try and be mindful of it, but I also try not to say anything in private that I wouldn't say publicly. Yeah. As yeah. my mother always says, you only have to tell the truth once. Right. Are you enjoying the job yet? Some days. Some days yes, some days no. <laughs> some days yes, some days no. <laughs> it's a hard job. It's a really hard job. It's it's uh I, it's it's a difficult job. I mean, you are the mayor and all that entails. So you are the public face of a city, but also you're running an organization with 9,000 employees and with our airport and water system, uh, over a billion dollar budget. And then your communities that you have to see about. And it's a, it's a lot. So I understand why people like Mayor Pete are now doing well because mayors are problem solvers. Do you feel a lot of pressure? I do. I do. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that I was born and raised in Atlanta. I can't get this wrong. Mm. I can't not do right by this city. And also the pressure of, you know, you think of mayors of Atlanta. These were giants. Maynard Jackson. Yes. Who changed the nation, who changed expectations for black people across this country. Um, Ambassador Andrew Young. I mean, those are huge shoes to fill. So it's a special city, especially in terms of black America. It's a really special city. And and, uh, going back to your question on things that have surprised me, the biggest surprise for me, I think, was coming out of the mayor's race and recognizing how many people paid attention to this race and how many people cared about this race. Mm-hmm. It didn't hit me until the morning of the election. I was um, getting ready to go and vote. And at that time, I was new to Instagram. And I logged on and I saw a post from Common and Gabrielle Union telling people to go and vote in Atlanta. And I thought, this is a really big deal to a lot of people. I mean, it is a big deal to people outside of Atlanta that this cool, younger woman who's named Keisha is the mayor <laughs> of this happening city. Well, um, I mean, are you are you aware, I guess, of the sort of national profile of like, Mayor Keisha, yay! Well, the beauty of growing up in Atlanta, there were eight other Keishas. <laughs> who went to school with me? Right. Keisha Lance, Keisha Green, Keisha Lester. I mean, I can go on. We all we were all one name. Keisha Allen. And you all had one name. So I remember after the election when the Landers got married and Keisha's shirts and all that came out. And I asked my husband, I was like, You think that's a big deal? My name is Keisha. And he went, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, you know, the bubble of Atlanta. I'm like, well, I know a lot of Keishas, but I guess it is a big deal. What's the difference between being a good mayor and being a great mayor? Uh, well, you know, um, good is the enemy of great. Begin is the first line in the book, good to great. And I think the difference is that a good mayor does things for today. And it's about what it means for your administration today. I think a great mayor thinks about the future and plans for the future and works for things that they may never get credit for. Hmm. Um, It's about tomorrow. What's the hardest part? Balance with family. Four kids, adopted, 17 to 
Eight-year-old twins, 17, 11, and eight-year-old twins. So how do you, how do you make that balance? You know, it's a very difficult balance. I don't think it's any more difficult than any number of mothers have to balance every day. I just do it on a different stage and, and probably have a whole lot more help than the vast majority of mothers have. But it, um, I often think about people who are very successful and you see the stories about how their kids have suffered. I don't know if it's because of their success or, you know, that's just how it works out sometimes, that kids will struggle. But the difference is if my kids are struggling, they're doing it on a, in a very public way. And that worries me. Um, also worry, as I'm sure many other parents do, are you making it too easy for your kids? Mm. Is it, you know, it's it's easier for me to have somebody come and help clean the house because I'm a working mom and thankfully I can have somebody help clean our house. But that now means that my 17-year-old doesn't make his bed because he's <laughs> expecting that somebody else is going to come on Wednesday and do it for him. So all the things that parents think about, um, but that's the hardest part. Even yesterday, and, there, and I'm sure working mothers especially have this this guilt. I was somewhere, we were celebrating a great ribbon cutting in a recreation center, and there were a bunch of happy kids around. And I had this moment, and I thought, well, my kids aren't here. Are they happy right now? Mm. Like, I'm here, and I'm making some other families really happy. But is this at the expense of not being home when my kids get home from school? Are they happy? It's tough. Yeah. But I, I and I talk about it a lot with my kids. Are you okay with me being mayor? Do you like it? Are you okay with it? And so far, so good. They're, so far, they're saying yes. So far, saying yes, and one of them even said, well, if you weren't married, would that mean you'd be home with us all the time? And I said, <laughs> yeah. And whoever it was was like, well, no, that's okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> that means we'd have to do our homework. <laughs> like, no, we need you to get out of here every day, too. <laughs> oh, my we live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick... Let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast that center Black voices. 
Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. Um, you've been really open about your father's past and how that has affected you in terms of how you do the job. And I want to talk a little bit about um, your father was a huge singer-songwriter. Mm-hmm. And then he gets a little later in his career and he falls on hard times. He starts selling drugs and he's arrested. And that experience has propelled you to be this criminal justice reformer. Um, so yeah. can you tell the story of what happened to you as a child with your father? And then let's link it to some of the initiatives that you are putting forth now. Yeah, My dad was a wonderful man. He um, was an entertainer, Grammy-nominated entertainer in the 1960s. Major Lance. Major Lance. Elton John got his start playing backup for him in his band. He opened for the Beatles? He opened for the Beatles. I never believed him, but I found a picture. You Google Major Lance, the Beatles, there's a picture of Paul McCartney getting off of the plane on their return to Europe, and he has my dad's album under his arm. So it is... Phenomenal to now go, oh, daddy, you were a big deal. Um, But I say that at eight, I learned that good people sometimes make bad decisions. Um, In hindsight, there were a lot of signs that I didn't recognize as a child because my parents didn't argue and fight in front of us. But at some point, we, what felt very suddenly to me, we moved from our very nice middle-class neighborhood into an apartment. Um, I later learned we moved because we were about to lose our house in a foreclosure. Uh, We moved into this apartment, and what I remember, my parents had separated. At some point, they reconciled. My dad came to live with us. We had boxes because we were about to move into another house. We had packed up a lot of stuff. And my dad used to work at night, and... So he was always home when I came home from school. And on this day, I was in third grade, September of 1978. I came home from school, and my dad was being led out of the door with his hands behind his back in handcuffs. And all of the boxes had been ripped apart. And I remember my toys were— Did he look at you? Did you look at him? He just had his head down and he just said, baby, it's going to be okay. Your mommy, your mom will be home soon. And I remember um, they, my sister and brother would come home a little later than me. They were in high school. And they made us sit on the couch. And they told us if we called anybody, they would know. And we sat there hours, just crying. Um, We couldn't call anybody, so they said they will know. Um, The rest of the story, my dad was arrested for selling drugs. His music had stopped selling. still had mouths to feed. And my dad was born in Mississippi on a sharecropper's farm, great migration to Chicago, Grew up in Cabrini Green, housing projects. All he knew was music. Didn't have a college education, nothing to fall back on. And um, he ended up being sentenced to 10 years in prison. Um, He served three. But it, it was the end of my family, as I knew it. My mom and dad divorced while he was in prison. Um, and my mom talks about that a lot now, you know, 
that she was blindsided. She had no idea this is going on. She didn't know what he was doing. She didn't know it. She didn't know it. And, um, I, you know, my dad was never the same. Um, it, it, you know, he had never been convicted of even a traffic ticket. So this was a, it was a blow to him. And it broke up our family. My family was never the same. My mother went from, you know, being a stay-at-home mom, and she had gone back to work when we had lost the house, but to then working two jobs and going back to school at night and it sometimes felt like I had lost one parent. So everything about my life changed. So this very steady, easy life. Ballet on Saturdays and fun things with your parents on Sundays and all that turns into going to see your dad in prison on weekends. And I just, part of that propelled me to go to law school. Um, I just, I never wanted that life. I never, there were two parts of it. I never wanted to be in prison for obvious reasons. And I never wanted to be as vulnerable as my mother was, um, relying on a man, any man for stability, even if it were my husband. And um, part of what we've been doing about criminal justice reform, large part has been driven about what I experienced as a child and what I wish had been there for my father, that there had been counseling and drug counseling available because there were problems with addiction, many entertainers during that time. Um, there were, there was nothing on the other side of prison. There was nothing to help him get his life back together and truly start over on a different path. Um, so many things that I, I, I know that could have made life very different for our family. And all we can hope to do now is do better for somebody else's family. So you are, you have changed the rules around cash bail? We have. So now in Atlanta, you don't stay in jail simply because you can't pay. So part of what I experienced as a child, even with other family members, you get a traffic ticket and you can't pay it and then that turns into probation fines and you can't pay the fine so then you get locked up and then you miss work and you don't go to work and just this never-ending cycle and even as uh, we've been talking about criminal justice reform there are things that have come back to me that I literally hadn't thought about since childhood I remember being in the car with someone who, one of my family members who had a very young child, and I was a teenager, and they were stopped for having an expired tag. Mm. And they were taken to jail for an expired tag. And thankfully, I was in the car with the younger child. Um, so I, I was, we were able to go to a pay, walk to a pay phone at that time and call my mom to come and pick us up. But I remember asking the officer, what would you do if I weren't here? And he said, he, you know, I can't remember. It was something to the effect of we'd send him to foster care or something like that. Jeez. Um, because I just remember thinking, why would you take somebody to jail because they didn't have a tag? And that's what happens to people of color, especially poor people. So in Atlanta, we've, we've eliminated that. You don't go to jail because you're poor. You don't go to jail for what we call quality of life offenses. You're given an opportunity to go to court 
as you probably would if you were dressed in a suit and tie and you were you looked a certain way <laughs> you give a chance have a chance to get your tag <laughs> and bring your paperwork in um you don't go to jail and stay in jail because you don't have $200 to pay because you were speeding. Um, this is not related to violent criminals. Um, right. This is just simply quality of life, that everyday folk get out of jail and they have money in their pocket and people who don't stay in. And a lot of these sort of quality of life charges, uh, you know, financial charges, are instituted by all sorts of municipalities as a way of making up lost tax dollars. Mm -hmm. Citizens tell them we want to pay lesser taxes, but we want the same services. And a lot of communities, and this was really blown up after Ferguson when reporters started to figure out what's really going on, put, you know, and connect the dots, that a lot of cities are preying on the poor yep. with these sorts of charges um, to make up the taxes that they're not assessing to the richer white uh, residents. And so you are eliminating that. I mean, the reality, no elected official wants to be the one to raise taxes. Right. Nobody wants to be the one to, by and large, put a burden on, on taxpayers. Um, but that being said, it shouldn't be on the backs of poor people either. And we haven't raised taxes in our city. We you know, there was this outcry that crime was going to explode in the city. Well, the reality is our crime numbers went down last year. Now, you know, there there have been some other what I call unintended consequences. Um, and I'll just give our homeless population as an example. We are seeing an increase, a visible increase on our streets for people sleeping on our streets. And some would argue, well, they should be in the city jail. Well, my response to that is, these are the poor people we've been talking about. So the answer is not to lock them up. The answer is let's provide some services so they're not sleeping on the street. Right. It's not put them back in jail. Right and hide them away for three days, three months at a time? What are the support services that we need to give these folk when we come in contact with them? So it's, um, you know, it's a, it's a balancing act. But I think, by and large, what we're doing in this city is creating a national conversation in a way that we haven't had even as I talk with um, Vice President Biden about criminal justice reform, we talked about the things that we're doing in Atlanta. And as we've eliminated cash bail bond, what are the other resources that we need to repurpose our city jail to make sure that the people who are sleeping on the street have a physical place that they can go to for services? So it's helping to create national policy and commitments on national policy that I don't think we otherwise would have had if we hadn't led the way in Atlanta. And you're also uh, instituting some reentry programs, which are really important and powerful to help, uh, you know, lower the recidivism rate. But since you bring up the vice president, I do want to dig into that. I hope we can have a friendly political argument about him sure. because you have endorsed him. I have. And about 50% of the black community nationwide is behind him now. <laughs> I don't have anything against him, mm -hmm. but I don't understand why we are so uh, so behind him as a community. I don't see what he is proposing that would earn him this dominant position in the race among black and brown people. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think he's right for the Democratic Party um, at this time, um, I think there's other people. I want to see a more progressive rather than a moderate nominee. I think in a lot of ways he slides by because he was standing next to Barack that for eight years. That was not a sacrifice. That was a step up for him. Um, and I just I don't see the policy that would earn him fifty percent of the of black support. Um, and so what would you say to that? 
I love that we're having a friendly debate on this. A um, couple of things. I think I don't think you can. I think it speaks volumes that he did stand by President Obama, and by that I mean, I don't know that that there are a whole bunch of white men of his age who would have take who would have played second fiddle to a black president. So I think that one to me. Um, speaks to who he is in in his heart, that he was okay to be number two to a black man, because that's a that's a very difficult pill for a lot of people to still swallow in this country. One, secondly, I think that um, you're right. He is not as progressive. He is more moderate. My belief is that it will take a more moderate candidate to be. Donald Trump and get back some of these states that we didn't carry in 2016, namely Ohio. The Rust Belt. The Rust Belt states. I think we can take Georgia and North Carolina with a moderate candidate. I like many other folk in this race. have a lot of respect for Kamala Harris, for Cory Booker, for Senator Warren. I don't know um, Bernie Sanders and some of the other candidates personally. I, I have gotten to know the three of them. So I think that we are very fortunate and that we do have some talented people. I think the whole field is better than what we have right now. But I think for when we when we examine objectively the data around how we lost, how Hillary Clinton was able to get the popular vote mm-hmm. but still lose the electoral college, I don't know of another candidate other than Joe Biden who can get those votes in those states. I mean, I don't think that Joe Biden is the only person who can win Rust Belt states. And I see the similarity with Hillary is that you have a candidate around whom there's not a lot of excitement. I don't see people who are like dying to vote for Joe the way we saw excitement around Bernie in 16, the way you saw excitement around Obama in 08 when we got into the general and the later in the primary and in the general. and I see a candidate who is going to have to answer for the crime bill um, that he authored. I mean, people are mad at Kamala for locking up some black men in California who smoke marijuana. Bernie Sanders also voted for that crime bill. Right, but Joe wrote it. And Bernie voted for it. And we know that that Bernie doesn't have a problem not supporting something that he doesn't believe in. He doesn't tow a party line. We know that. But but what about Joe having to answer for the crime bill? Of I mean, among many things. Yeah. But Well, you know, I go back to the my Angelou quote that I love. When you know better, you do better. And I I cannot defend all portions of that crime bill. And I don't think that he would today either. But I think you got to look at where the country was. That was when crack was exploding. There were people saying that it was different than cocaine. You had not just Joe Biden supporting it. You had the Clinton administration. You had black mayors. You had the majority of the Congressional Black Caucus all supporting this crime bill. What we know now is there were some things that should have been done differently as it relates to that crime bill. And I appreciate that he recognizes that there there were issues. So we talk about his time with President Obama. There was an attempt to really claw back a lot of the issues, including um, the way that crack cocaine and, and cocaine sentences were handed out. Also, um, you know, we talk about incarceration in this country. I think there is a myth that mass incarceration came with the 94 crime bill. Mass yeah. incarceration, yeah. by and large, is a state problem. My dad was convicted sure. of state charges. Sure. Um, mandatory minimums didn't come with that 94 crime bill. So I believe the last stats I saw, 91% of inmates in this country are local and state inmates. They aren't federal inmates. But, you know, I hear people say this election should be about more than than beating Donald Trump. It should be, but unfortunately, that's our number one. Sure. That's where we are as a country. We've got to get this man out of office. A hundred percent. 
But if the Democrats nominate somebody because they hope that some people who voted for Trump might vote for him, leaving out the people in your family, we have to, he, Trump excites Republicans. And if we don't have a candidate who will excite Democrats in a similar way, then we're going into battle with a less sharp sword. Well, what I would say, though, we don't have an Obama in this race. We don't. I, I, we, this I would, is not. I would, I, might, I would disagree. Who would you think it is? I think that when uh, Elizabeth Warren gets more shine on her, and I love Kamala as well, and I know her personally, and she's an amazing candidate. I see, so, I see in her somebody who's a little far behind, and I'm wondering if she can't catch fire with black voters, it's going to be hard for her to catch fire with all voters. I see Elizabeth Warren poised to potentially get close to Joe and perhaps overtake him. And when she is given the full spotlight, people will be excited to vote for her as just as the person, as a thinker. Um, she's an, I find her to be an extraordinary candidate. I think that she is brilliant. And I do think she's an extraordinary candidate, extraordinary candidate. But I also think that when you go into the Rust Belt states and you start talking about eliminating private insurance, you're going to lose a lot of folk who worked 30 plus years for GM so that they could retire with their good private insurance. Even someone on my team's dad retired from GM, and the first thing he said was, I don't want anybody touching my damn insurance. I negotiated with the union, and I, I took pay cuts and all kinds of stuff to help preserve these benefits. This is what I worked for my whole life. I think that's going to be a challenge for her, and that's what I mean. That when you look at those numbers in Michigan and you look at the thin margins in Michigan and Pennsylvania, that's what scares me about an Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. And Joe Biden does amazingly well in the Rust Belt states. He is. He is. And I, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I look at Joe as like the singer that we all like, but like, what's his hit record? Like, I don't know. Uh, right. I mean, like, like, what is the policy? Because I know with Kamala, I know with Elizabeth Warren, I know with Bernie, uh, what their policy, what their ideas are. Joe, I feel like is like, I'm effective and electable. But well, what's your idea? What's your policy? I want you to look at his criminal justice policy. And I particularly want you to look at it because we had a lot of input on that policy, okay. on what's happening in our cities. And as a mayor and as a, as mayor of you know, the city that's the capital of black America. Yeah. This is what we need and this is what we want for our cities. And he listened. And you look at his criminal justice policy, he's talking about eliminating cash bail bonds, completely removing um, the disparity between crack, cocaine, um, and Power. cocaine sentencing. Um I mean the list the list goes on. So it's a very comprehensive policy and I think you know the deeper we get into the campaign you'll hear him talk more about it and you'll hear people like me who are his surrogates speak more about it as well. Let's talk about Atlanta. There's a lot of racial distrust in the country and in this city and this becomes a microcosm of the country in that way. How do you deal with that? I think that Atlanta has this really long legacy of of openness. And it's it's sometimes frustrating because there are many people who really do believe that this is a post-racial America, and we know that it's not. No. But I think the difference in Atlanta is that we still talk about it and we still confront it. Talk about race. We still talk about race in this city. Um, I was the, sorry, what is the percentage of black folks in this town? We are about 50-50 okay. now okay. in Atlanta. Like many other cities, we're experiencing gentrification in the city. Atlanta is, is very interesting, though. The difference with a lot of other cities, our gentrification also, um, there are a bunch of black gentrifiers in the city because we know it's about economics. Sure. So 
I'm more concerned as mayor about the imbalance that we have with the have and have nots in this city than any imbalance that we might be experiencing as it relates to race in the city. But right now we're about 50-50, which is very different. For Atlanta. I mean, I know some of the distrust or some of the some of the division is really baked into the city in really deep ways. I went to college here. I went to Emory. Mm-hmm. And to get via public transportation from Emory to Morehouse and Spelman was difficult. And it was like purposefully difficult because we don't want y'all coming over here. Well, you know, there is uh <laughs> It's not really a legend. It's true. When MARTA, our public transit agency, was first created, there was a whole conversation on why it didn't expand into all of the metro counties, and it was it surrounded race. And uh, part of the story is that there was measurement of the width of the door to make sure that somebody couldn't walk on with the TV. <laughs> <laughs> Because, of course, <laughs> we were going to get on buses and go and steal TVs. So, I, wow. So, and as we're here in 2019, we're now just beginning to have a comprehensive conversation about expanding MARTA in other counties. And uh, Gwinnett County, one of our largest counties, just voted down um, part of that expansion. But we're having a regional transportation conversation because I think what's happening now outside the city of Atlanta, Atlanta's having so many economic wins. So much of it's related to transit and the ease to get around Atlanta that other counties want a part of it. And Emory is now a part of the city of Atlanta. And that's changed since you were there. It wasn't part of the city of Atlanta. It was not in the city. It was in unincorporated DeKalb County. So now it's a part of the city of Atlanta, and we're talking about transit expansion into Emory. So we've come a long way. You sure have. I did not even know that. Most Um, people think of Atlanta, and they just think of Atlanta, but you're really thinking about a metro area. Yeah. Um, Did God tell you to run for mayor? He did. How? I... I prayed and I prayed, and the clock was ticking. There were people jumping in, and one of the biggest arguments I had with my husband was my inability to make a decision, and I kept saying, I don't know that this is what God wants me to do. And um, I was sitting in church, and I received the confirmation that I needed that I should run. What was that? What does that look like? You know, it's one of the, I think God speaks to all of us in different ways. I just know when I know. I knew when I bought my first house that that was the house when I walked in the door. I knew with the adoption of all four of our children that those were the children that we were to say yes to. I knew it with the mayor's race. Um, It's just... um, Uh, a certainty, a stillness that God gives to me. I can't say I heard this booming voice saying, run, run, but I I knew it in my spirit. And and I had God on a deadline. Um, (laughs) He was was supposed to have told me um, by the end of the summer, I think it was 2016, and I didn't get the confirmation until a few months later. And I remember being so disappointed because I'm going, well, God, I thought we agreed. <laughs> I, <laughs> you were going to tell me. <laughs> and um, I remember that Sunday at church. I didn't want to go to church that Sunday. I, my daughter came in and begged me to go, and I thought, okay, well, I'm already staying out of church, and then the baby wants to go. So that's a double sin if you don't go, because the baby <laughs> wants to go to church. I went to a service that I didn't normally go to. It was a late afternoon service, so I was really disgusted. Uh, the associate pastor came up to preach. I'm like, I'm at this service. I don't want to be here, and it's not even the pastor speaking. 
And in his message, um, and I, I can't even remember exactly what the message was, but at the end of the service, I was so overcome, I couldn't move from my seat. I just, I sat there and I cried. And there was so many emotions, I knew I'd finally gotten the answer. And in hindsight, like maybe I was crying because of all the things that were going to be in store for me being there. Um, but I knew. Has God spoken to you as mayor? Are there things that you are doing or trying to do um, because of that influence? You know, I I am constantly in prayer uh, about things big and small. And some days it's as simple as, Lord, just give me the courage to do the right thing even if it doesn't agree with anybody else. In other days, it's just for discernment because there are so many moving pieces and and so much you can never know. And so in some days, it's just for protection. Um, just put, your head, put a hedge of protection around me. Um, I pray for our city, um, his covering over our city. I mean, I, you know, I'm a woman of faith. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order. Usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market. Dot com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. On March 16, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamin, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. So I don't think anything is ever too big or too small. I don't, I don't feel as if I pray enough. <laughs> um, you know, there, some days it's just pulling out my, my oil and, and putting it on my forehead for myself. Um, I just, I, I don't think that I could do this job without having a direct line to God. What does Atlanta need most over the next few years? I think that Atlanta needs a stronger education system. Um, I went to public schools in our city, and I, I was laughing with someone on my team when we began the campaign, um, you know, Atlanta is a very segregated city. Mm-hmm. And we were having a discussion about race, and, and she said, you don't have any white friends from childhood? I said, I went to high school with 2,000 black people. There was one white kid in the whole school. That's There's always <laughs> one white kid in the whole school. <laughs> there was one. <laughs> one in middle school and one in high school. You can never have 100%. <laughs> Um, and if you probably would look back now at the demographics, we weren't by and large a group of kids who were supposed to succeed, but we had all of the tools we needed. It's because we had a strong school system and we had teachers and principals who believed that we were as good as anybody else. And we didn't know to even think otherwise. And in a lot of ways, um, 
I feel like with our, our public schools especially, I'm not saying that it's not happening in some schools. I don't know that it's happening in all of our schools in the city. And when you look at crime numbers, and I think back when I was a magistrate judge, by and large, the men who came before me were men who hadn't finished high school. They dropped out in ninth grade. And I think until we strengthen our schools, all of our schools, not just in certain neighborhoods, all of our schools, until we strengthen that part of our city, I don't think we'll ever live up and fulfill the legacy that Dr. King and Dr. Mays and so many others believe that we could. Do you have a, a, a dream policy where, you know, if I didn't have to work through the bureaucracy and I could just say, okay, poof, let's go. We're doing this now. What would that look like? Oh, that's a great question. Um, if I didn't have to navigate um, bureaucracy, there would be a lot of things that i just check off the list and it wouldn't take up, wouldn't suck energy out of the room. A airport takeover, for example. It was a, a push by the state to try and take over the airport last year. It took up months. Um, it was very challenging for us. It took up a lot of time. That was time that could have been spent doing something else on behalf of our community. So you you won that battle, but you lost in how much time you had to spend so you couldn't do other things. I did, and it will likely come up again in January when they go back in session. So some someone on my team said this um, about me, and I think it was a compliment. Like, what do you do with the politician who hates politics? And I'm sure a lot of people would say they hate it, but I really do hate you the hate politics. politics. I just want to do the business of the people. But, you know, I mean, it, it, it is what it is. How do you navigate the politics and do the diplomacy with the other politicians? And how do, like, how do you do that effectively? I'm a work in progress. I mean, even with the, the state, I've developed a, a good working relationship with a lot of our Republican leaders. But for me, it's about authentic interaction. You know, it's about um, getting to know many of these folk when it's not been about the airport, when it's just been because we want to get to know each other and spending some time. And for me, that's been taking me out of my comfort zone. Um, but it's interesting what I found. There's so much more common ground with us, even going over to the state capitol, talking about affordable housing. And for me, not dialing back or removing things from my agenda because I think it won't appeal to somebody in South Georgia. Our agenda is what it is. But surprisingly, having a conversation about affordable housing with someone from South Georgia, and they're interested. And then you stop and go, really? You care about affordable housing? Well, part of it's they've got to come live in Atlanta for three months out of the year. So they got to have somewhere they can afford to live, too. Um, but many of the communities throughout the state are having some of the same challenges. So it's um, it's been a stretch for me. Um, I describe myself as an introvert who masks as an extrovert. So I would just much rather be at my desk doing the work and not having to go out and and be a politician, but that's part of the job. Mm -hmm. You made me think about uh, Obama talking about being a state senator and playing poker with some of the older guys mm -hmm. every Friday night just to create those relationships yeah. so that when you want to go ask for something, we already have a friendship. We already have some sort of common ground. Yeah. That's some of the work that you're talking about that you have to do that pushes you outside of your comfort zone. But some of these guys over there really like our policies differ. We, we don't agree on a lot of politics, but understand we both understand we got to work together. And, um, What's good for Georgia may not always be good for Atlanta, but we just work to try and find some common ground. There are things that I don't 
agree with the governor on, a lot of things that I don't agree with the governor on. But we've had a very cordial relationship, a very pleasant relationship, and the things that we can work together on, we work together on well. You're only the second black woman to become mayor of mm-hmm. this great city. How often are you encountering, and maybe it's just a feeling, but how often are you encountering people in the state, in politics, who are kind of like, I don't really want to hear it from a black woman? I think that a lot, I, I can't just, I don't, I'm not just going to put it on um, the state. I think that's just a sentiment of people in general, the tendency often to dismiss black women. But what I love about where we are as a country is that people are talking about the fact that we are a force to be reckoned with. So you can dismiss us individually all you want, but you do recognize that we are the strongest voting bloc in this country Mm -hmm. and that we move elections. The spine of the Democratic Party. It is... It's a wonderful power power that we have. So I, I get dismissed all of the time. I'm used to that. But I think there's power in being underestimated. I'm okay with somebody. I mean, I went through with the mayor's race. Think that I'm not a contender. Think that I'm, I'm a puppet. Think that I'm not that bright. Think that I'm pampered. That whatever it is you want to think. While you focus on somebody else, meanwhile, I'm still rising and I'm still winning. Thanks to Keisha for a great interview. And thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality. This show can help. I'm on Twitter at Torre, on Instagram at Torre Show. Please leave a review on iTunes. It helps. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington. We're distributed by DCP Entertainment, and we will be back next Wednesday, no doubt, with another amazing guest, because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.